Part three of the portrait. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Red Abras. The Open Door and the Portrait. Stories of the Seen and Unseen by Margaret O. Oliphant. The Portrait. Part three. Thus time passed on for several quiet days. There was nothing to make us give any special heed to the passage of time, life being very uneventful and its habits unvaried. My mind was very much preoccupied by my father's tenants. He had a great deal of property in the town which was so near us, streets of small houses, the best paying property, I was assured of any i was very anxious to come to some settled conclusion on the one hand not to let myself be carried away by sentiment on the other not to allow my strong roused feelings to fall in the blank of routine as his had done i was seated one evening in my own sitting-room busy with this matter busy with calculations as to cost and profit with an anxious desire to convince him either that his profits were greater than justice allowed or that they carried with them a more urgent duty than he had conceived it was night but not late not more than ten o'clock the household still astir everything was quiet not the solemnity of midnight silence in which there is always something of mystery but the soft breathing quiet of the evening full of the faint habitual sounds of a human dwelling a conscious of life about and i was very busy with my figures interested feeling no room in my mind for any other thought the singular experience which had startled me so much had passed over very quickly and there had been no return i had ceased to think of it indeed i had never thought of it save for the moment setting it down after it was over to a physical cause without much difficulty at this time i was far too busy to have thoughts to spare for anything or room for imagination and when suddenly in a moment without any warning the first symptom returned i started with it into determined resistance resolute not to be fooled by any mock influence which could resolve itself into the action of nerves or ganglions the first symptom as before was that my heart sprang up with a bound as if a cannon had been fired at my ear my whole being responded with a start the pen fell out of my fingers the figures went out of my head as if all faculty had departed and yet i was conscious for a time at least of keeping my self-control I was like the rider of a frightened horse, rendered almost wild by something which in the mystery of its voiceless being it has seen, something on the road which it will not pass, but wildly plunging, resisting every persuasion, turns from, with ever-increasing passion. The rider himself after a time becomes infected with this inexplainable desperation of terror, and I suppose I must have done so but for a time i kept the upper hand i would not allow myself to spring up as i wished as my impulse was 
but sat there doggedly clinging to my books to my table fixing myself on i did not mind what to resist the flood of sensation of emotion which was sweeping through me carrying me away i tried to continue my calculations i tried to stir myself up with recollections of the miserable sights i had seen the poverty the helplessness i tried to work myself into indignation but all through these efforts i felt the contagion growing upon me my mind falling into sympathy with all those straining faculties of the body startled excited driven wild by something i knew not what it was not fear i was like a ship at sea straining and plunging against wind and tide but i was not afraid i am obliged to use these metaphors otherwise i could give no explanation of my condition seized upon against my will and torn from all those moorings of reason to which i clung with desperation as long as i had the strength when i got up from my chair at last the battle was lost so far as my powers of self-control were concerned i got up or rather was dragged up from my seat clutching at these material things round me as with a last effort to hold my own but that was no longer possible i was overcome i stood for a moment looking round me feebly feeling myself begin to babble with stammering lips which was the alternative of shrieking and which i seemed to choose as a lesser evil what i said was what am i to do and after a while what do you want me to do although throughout i saw no one heard no voice and had in reality not power enough in my dizzy and confused brain to know what i myself meant i stood thus for a moment looking blankly round me for guidance repeating the question which seemed after a time to become almost mechanical what do you want me to do though i neither knew to whom i addressed it nor why i said it presently whether in answer whether in mere yielding of nature i cannot tell i became aware of a difference not a lessening of the agitation but a softening as if my powers of resistance being exhausted a gentler force a more benignant influence had room i felt myself consent to whatever it was my heart melted in the midst of the tumult i seemed to give myself up and move as if drawn by someone whose arm was in mine as if softly swept along not forcibly but with an utter consent of all my faculties to do i knew not what for love of i knew not whom for love that was how it seemed not by force as when i went before but my steps took the same course i went through the dim passages in an exultation indescribable and opened the door of my father's room he was seated there at his table as usual the light of the lamp falling on his white hair he looked up with some surprise at the sound of the opening door phil he said and with a look of wandering apprehension on his face watched me approach i went straight up to him and put my hand on his shoulder phil what is the matter what do you want with me what is it he said father i can't tell you i come not of myself there must be something in it though i don't know what it is this is the second time i have been brought to you here are you going he stopped himself the exclamation had begun with an angry intention he stopped looking at me with a scared look as if perhaps it might be true 
Do you mean mad? I don't think so. I have no delusions that I know of. Father, think, do you know any reason why I am brought here? For some cause there must be. I stood with my hand upon the back of his chair. His table was covered with papers, among which were several letters with the broad black border which I had before observed. I noticed this now in my excitement without any distinct association of thoughts, for that I was not capable of, but the black border caught my eye, and I was conscious that he too gave a hurried glance at them, and with one hand swept them away. Philip, he said, pushing back his chair, you must be ill, my poor boy. Evidently we have not been treating you rightly. You have been more ill all through than I supposed. Let me persuade you to go to bed. I am perfectly well, I said. Father, don't let us deceive one another. I am neither a man to go mad nor to see ghosts. What it is that has got the command over me I can't tell, but there is some cause for it. You are doing something or planning something with which I have a right to interfere. He turned round squarely in his chair, with a spark in his blue eyes. He was not a man to be meddled with. I have yet to learn what can give my son a right to interfere. I am in possession of all my faculties, I hope. Father, I cried, won't you listen to me? No one can say I have been undutiful or disrespectful. I am a man, with a right to speak my mind, and I have done so. But this is different. I am not here by my own will. Something that is stronger than I has brought me. There is something in your mind which disturbs others. I don't know what I am saying. This is not what I meant to say. But you know the meaning better than I. Someone who can speak to you only by me, speaks to you by me, and I know that you can understand. He gazed up at me, growing pale, and his underlip fell. I, for my part, felt that my message was delivered. My heart sank into a stillness so sudden that it made me faint. The light swam in my eyes. Everything went round with me. I kept upright only by my hold upon the chair, and in the sense of utter weakness that followed, I dropped on my knees, I think, first, then on the nearest seat that presented itself, and covering my face with my hands, had hard ado not to sob in the sudden removal of that strange influence, the relaxation of the strain. There was silence between us for some time. Then he said, but with a voice slightly broken, I don't understand you, Phil. You must have taken some fancy into your mind which my slower intelligence. Speak out what you want to say. What do you find fault with? Is it all, all that woman, Jordan? He gave a short forced laugh as he broke off and shook me almost roughly by the shoulder, saying, Speak out. What? What do you want to say? It seems, sir, that I have said everything. My voice trembled more than his, but not in the same way. I have told you that I did not come by my own will, quite otherwise. I resisted as long as I could. Now all is said. It is for you to judge whether it was worth the trouble or not. He got up from his seat in a hurried way. You would have me as mad as yourself, he said, then sat down again as quickly. Come, Phil, if it will please you not to make a breach, the first breach between us, you shall have your way. I consent to your looking into that matter about the poor tenants. Your mind shall not be upset about that, 
even though I don't enter into all your views. Thank you, I said, but father, that is not what it is. Then it is a piece of folly, he said angrily. I suppose you mean, but this is a matter in which I choose to judge for myself. You know what I mean, I said as quietly as I could, though I don't myself know that proves there is good reason for it. Will you do one thing for me before I leave you? Come with me into the drawing room. What end, he said with again the tremble in his voice, is to be served by that? I don't very well know, but to look at her, you and I together, will always do something for us, sir. As for breach, there can be no breach when we stand there. He got up, trembling like an old man, which he was, but which he never looked like, save at moments of emotion like this, and told me to take the light, then stopped when he had got halfway across the room. This is a piece of theatrical sentimentality, he said. No, Phil, I will not go. I will not bring her into any such. Put down the lamp, and if you will take my advice, go to bed. At least, I said, I'll trouble you no more, father, tonight. So long as you understand, there need be no more to say. He gave me a very curt good night and turned back to his papers. The letters with the black edge, either by my imagination or in reality, always keeping uppermost. I went to my own room for my lamp and then alone proceeded to the silent shrine in which the portrait hung. I at least would look at her tonight. I don't know whether I asked myself in so many words if it were she who, or if it was anyone, I knew nothing, but my heart was drawn with a softness born, perhaps of the great weakness in which I was left after that visitation to her, to look at her, to see, perhaps, if there was any sympathy, any approval in her face. I set down my lamp on the table where her little work basket still was. The light threw a gleam upward upon her. She seemed more than ever to be stepping into the room, coming down towards me, coming back to her life. Ah, no. Her life was lost and vanished. All mine stood between her and the days she knew. She looked at me with eyes that did not change. The anxiety I had seen at first seemed now a wistful, subdued question, but that difference was not in her look, but in mine. I need not linger on the intervening time. The doctor who attended us usually came in next day by accident, and we had a long conversation. On the following day, a very impressive yet genial gentleman from town lunched with us, a friend of my father's, Dr. Something, but the introduction was hurried, and I did not catch his name. He too had a long talk with me afterwards, my father being called away to speak to someone on business. Dr. Something drew me out on the subject of the dwellings of the poor. He said he heard I took great interest in this question, which had come so much to the front at the present moment. He was interested in it too, and wanted to know the view I took. I explained at considerable length that my view did not concern the general subject, on which I had scarcely thought, so much as the individual mode of management of my father's estate. He was a most patient and intelligent listener, agreeing with me on some points, differing in others, and his visit was very pleasant. I had no idea until after of its special object, though a sudden puzzled look and slight shake of the head when my father returned might have thrown some light upon it. 
the report of the medical experts in my case must however have been quite satisfactory for i heard nothing more of them it was i think a fortnight later when the next and the last of these strange experiences came this time it was morning about noon a wet and rather dismal spring day the half-spread leaves seemed to tap at the window with an appeal to be taken in the primroses that showed golden upon the grass at the roots of the trees just beyond the smooth-shorn grass of the lawn were all drooped and sodden among their sheltering leaves the very growth seemed dreary the sense of spring in the air making the feeling of winter a grievance instead of the natural effect which it had conveyed a few months before i had been writing letters and was cheerful enough going back among the associates of my old life with perhaps a little longing for its freedom and independence but at the same time a not ungrateful consciousness that for the moment my present tranquillity might be best this was my condition a not unpleasant one when suddenly the now well-known symptoms of the visitation to which i had become subject suddenly seized upon me the leap of the heart the sudden causeless overwhelming physical excitement which i could neither ignore nor allay i was terrified beyond description beyond reason when i became conscious that this was about to begin over again what purpose did it answer what good was in it my father indeed understood the meaning of it though i did not understand but it was little agreeable to be thus made a helpless instrument without any will of mine in an operation of which i knew nothing and to enact the part of the oracle unwillingly with suffering and such a strain as it took me days to get over i resisted not as before but yet desperately trying with better knowledge to keep down the growing passion i hurried to my room and swallowed a dose of a sedative which had been given me to procure sleep on my first return from india i saw morphew in the hall and called him to talk to him and cheat myself if possible by that means morphew lingered however and before he came i was beyond conversation i heard him speak his voice coming vaguely through the turmoil which was already in my ears but what he said i have never known i stood staring trying to recover my power of attention with an aspect which ended by completely frightening the man he cried out at last that he was sure i was ill that he must bring me something which words penetrated more or less into my maddened brain it became impressed upon me that he was going to get someone one of my father's doctors perhaps to prevent me from acting to stop my interference and that if i waited a moment longer i might be too late a vague idea seized me at the same time of taking refuge with the portrait going to its feet throwing myself there perhaps till the paroxysms should be over but it was not there that my footsteps were directed i can remember making an effort to open the door of the drawing-room and feeling myself swept past it as if by a gale of wind it was not there that i had to go i knew very well where i had to go once more on my confused and voiceless mission to my father who understood although i could not understand yet as it was daylight and all was clear i could not help noting one or two circumstances on my way i saw someone sitting in the hall as if waiting a woman a girl a black shrouded figure with a thick veil over her face and asked myself who she was and what she wanted there 
this question which had nothing to do with my present condition somehow got into my mind and was tossed up and down upon the tumultuous tide like a stray log on the breast of a fiercely rolling stream now submerged now coming uppermost at the mercy of the waters it did not stop me for a moment as i hurried towards my father's room but it got upon the current of my mind i flung open my father's door and closed it again after me without seeing who was there or how he was engaged the full clearness of the daylight did not identify him as the lamp did at night he looked up at the sound of the door with a glance of apprehension and rising suddenly interrupting someone who was standing speaking to him with much earnestness and even vehemence came forward to meet me i cannot be disturbed at present he said quickly i am busy then seeing the look in my face which by this time he knew he too changed colour phil he said in a low imperative voice wretched boy go away go away don't let a stranger see you i can't go away i said it is impossible you know why i have come i cannot if i would it is more powerful than i go sir he said go at once no more of this folly i will not have you in this room go go i made no answer i don't know that i could have done so there had never been any struggle between us before but i had no power to do one thing or another the tumult within me was in full carrier i heard indeed what he said and was able to reply but his words too were like straws tossed upon the tremendous stream i saw now with my feverish eyes who the other person present was it was a woman dressed also in mourning similar to the one in the hall but this a middle-aged woman like a respectable servant she had been crying and in the pause caused by this encounter between my father and myself dried her eyes with a handkerchief which she rolled like a ball in her hand evidently in strong emotion she turned and looked at me as my father spoke to me for a moment with a gleam of hope then falling back into her former attitude my father returned to his seat he was much agitated too though doing all that was possible to conceal it my inopportune arrival was evidently a great and unlooked-for vexation to him he gave me the only look of passionate displeasure i have ever had from him as he sat down again but he said nothing more you must understand he said addressing the woman that i have said my last words on this subject i don't choose to enter into it again in the presence of my own son who is not well enough to be made a party to any discussion i am sorry that you should have had so much trouble in vain but you were warned beforehand and you have only yourself to blame i acknowledge no claim and nothing you can say will change my resolution i must beg you to go away all this is very painful and quite useless i acknowledge no claim oh sir she cried her eyes beginning once more to flow her speech interrupted by little sobs maybe i did wrong to speak of a claim i am not educated to argue with a gentleman maybe we have no claim but if it's not by right oh mr caning won't you let your heart be touched by pity she don't know what i am saying poor dear she is not one to beg and pray for herself as i am doing for her oh sir she is so young 
she is so lone in this world not a friend to stand by her nor a house to take her in you are the nearest to her of any one that's left in this world she hasn't a relation not one so near as you oh she cried with a sudden thought turning quickly round upon me this gentleman's your son now i think of it it's not your relation she is but his through his mother that's nearer nearer oh sir you are young your heart should be more tender here is my young lady that has no one in the world to look to her your own flesh and blood your mother's cousin your mother's my father called to her to stop with a voice of thunder philip leave us at once it's not a matter to be discussed with you and then in a moment it became clear to me what it was it had been with difficulty that i had kept myself still my breast was laboring with the fever of an impulse poured into me more than i could contain and now for the first time i knew why i hurried towards him and took his hand though he resisted into mine mine were burning but his like ice their touch burned me with its chill like fire this is what it is i cried i had no knowledge before i don't know now what is being asked of you but father understand you know and i know now that someone sends me someone who has a right to interfere he pushed me away with all his might you are mad he cried what right have you to think oh you are mad mad i have seen it coming on the woman the petitioner had grown silent watching his brief conflict with the terror and interest with which women watch a struggle between men she started and fell back when she heard what he said but did not take her eyes off me following every movement i made when i turned to go away a cry of indescribable disappointment and remonstrance burst from her and even my father raised himself up and stared at my withdrawal astonished to find that he had overcome me so soon and easily i paused for a moment and looked back on them seeing them large and vague through the mist of fever i am not going away i said i am going for another messenger one you cannot gainsay my father rose he called out to me threateningly i'll have nothing touched that is hers nothing that is hers shall be profaned i waited to hear no more i knew what i had to do by what means it was conveyed to me i cannot tell but the certainty of an influence which no one thought of calmed me in the midst of my fever i went out into the hall where i had seen the young stranger waiting i went up to her and touched her on the shoulder she rose at once with a little movement of alarm yet with docile and instant obedience as if she had expected the summons i made her take off her veil and her bonnet scarcely looking at her scarcely seeing her knowing how it was i took her soft small cool yet trembling hand into mine it was so soft and cool not cold it refreshed me with its tremulous touch all through i moved and spoke like a man in a dream swiftly noiselessly all the complications of waking life removed without embarrassment without reflection without the loss of a moment my father was still standing up leaning a little forward as he had done when i withdrew threatening yet terror-stricken 
not knowing what I might be about to do when I returned with my companion. That was the one thing he had not thought of. He was entirely undecided, unprepared. He gave her one look, flung up his arms above his head, and uttered a distracted cry, so wild that it seemed the last outcry of nature. Agnes! then fell back like a sudden rain upon himself into his chair. I had no leisure to think how he was, or whether he could hear what I said. I had my message to deliver. Father, I said, laboring with my panting breath, it is for this that heaven has opened, and one whom I never saw, one whom I know not, has taken possession of me. Had we been less earthly, we should have seen her herself and not merely her image. I have not even known what she meant. I have been as a fool without understanding. This is the third time I have come to you with her message, without knowing what to say. But now I have found it out. This is her message. I have found it out at last. There was an awful pause, a pause in which no one moved or breathed. Then there came a broken voice out of my father's chair. He had not understood, though I think he heard what I said. He put out two feeble hands. Phil, I think I am dying. Has she? Has she come for me? He said. We had to carry him to his bed. What struggles he had gone through before I cannot tell. He had stood fast and had refused to be moved, and now he fell, like an old tower, like an old tree. The necessity there was for thinking of him saved me from the physical consequences which had prostrated me on a former occasion. I had no leisure now for any consciousness of how matters went with myself. His delusion was not wonderful, but most natural. She was clothed in black from head to foot, instead of the white dress of the portrait. She had no knowledge of the conflict, of nothing but that she was called for that her fate might depend on the next few minutes. In her eyes there was a pathetic question, a line of anxiety in the lids, an innocent appeal in the looks, and the face the same, the same lips, sensitive, ready to quiver, the same innocent candid brow, the look of a common race, which is more subtle than mere resemblance. How I knew that it was so I cannot tell, nor any man. It was the other, the elder, ah, no, not elder, the ever young, the Agnes, to whom age can never come. She, who they say was the mother of a man who never saw her, it was she who led her kinswoman, her representative, into our hearts. My father recovered after a few days. He had taken cold, it was said the day before, and naturally at seventy a small matter is enough to upset the balance even of a strong man. He got quite well, but he was willing enough afterwards to leave the management of that ticklish kind of property which involves human well-being in my hands, who could move about more freely and see with my own eyes how things were going on. He liked home better and had more pleasure in his personal existence in the end of his life. Agnes is now my wife, as he had of course foreseen. It was not merely the disinclination to receive her father's daughter or to take upon him a new responsibility that had moved him to do him justice, but both these motives had told strongly. 
I have never been told, and now will never be told, what his griefs against my mother's family, and specially against that cousin, had been, but that he had been very determined, deeply prejudiced. There can be no doubt. It turned out after that the first occasion on which I had been mysteriously commissioned to him with a message which I did not understand, and which for that time he did not understand, was the evening of the day on which he had received the dead man's letter, appealing to him, to him, a man whom he had wronged, on behalf of the child who was about to be left friendless in the world. The second time, further letters, from the nurse who was the only guardian of the orphan, and the chaplain of the place where her father had died, taking it for granted that my father's house was her natural refuge, had been received. The third I have already described and its results. For a long time after, my mind was never without a lurking fear that the influence which had once taken possession of me might return again. Why should I have feared to be influenced to be the messenger of a blessed creature whose wishes could be nothing but heavenly? Who can say? Flesh and blood is not made for such encounters. They were more than I could bear, but nothing of the kind has ever occurred again. Agnes had her peaceful domestic throne established under the picture. My father wished it to be so, and spent his evenings there in the warmth and light instead of in the old library, in the narrow circle, cleared by our lamp out of the darkness, as long as he lived. It is supposed by strangers that the picture on the wall is that of my wife, and I have always been glad that it should be so supposed. She, who was my mother, who came back to me and became as my soul for three strange moments, and no more, but with whom I can feel no credible relationship as she stands there, has retired for me into the tender regions of the unseen. She has passed once more into the secret company of those shadows who can only become real in an atmosphere fitted to modify and harmonize all differences and make all wonders possible, the light of the perfect day. End of Part 3 End of The Portrait by Margaret O. Oliphant Recording by Red Abras, December 2007